0: <laughs> Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing good. You looking good. Grab your Bibles if you got them. I hope you do. You're going to be in the book of Genesis. The reason we wanted to show you that video is because we want you to understand that we are a part of something so much bigger than just this thing that we attend on the weekends. That that we're we're doing this series. We're in the second week of an eight week series called Ecclesia. That's how you say it. Everybody say Ecclesia. That's a Greek word, and the word is now translated church. Originally, uh, it was the word that Jesus used to describe this thing that he was going to start. And the first time he ever used the word, it's in Matthew chapter 16, he takes his boys, his 12 disciples, he takes them to Caesarea Philippi, which would have been like ancient Las Vegas. What happened in Caesarea Philippi just stayed in Caesarea Philippi. And it was there, it was literally at the edge of the gates of hell, that's where the gates of hell were. And it's on that place where he asked his disciples, so who do people say that I am? And they've got all kind of weird Oprah-esque answers. And then he goes, all right, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter, his name wasn't Peter yet, but Peter says, "Uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in that moment... Uh, Jesus stops everything and says, hold on, Peter, that idea did not come from you. It came from the father above. And I'm going to change your name to Petra, which means rock or Rocky. So he changes his name to Rocky. So then dun dun, 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 dun. The music starts. And then Jesus says, and upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now that word ecclesia was not a religious word. It just meant like a called out people on purpose or the way I translate it here is it was a movement. About 300 years later, um, church fathers started using this word kirche instead of ekklesia. Kirche means the Lord's house. It means like a place that you go on the weekends on Sunday, get dressed up, and then can go eat casserole afterwards, all right? But that's different than what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about this movement, this ecclesia of called out people on purpose. And the purpose was to make disciples all over the world, not for their own glory, but for the glory of Jesus, that there is not a square inch in all of creation that Christ has not declared that is mine. And we as a church are a part of the church. And, and so what I wanted to do in this series, Ecclesia, is let you know what kind of church you're a part of if you're going to be a part of this church. And so we're going to talk about our, our four core values and we're going to talk about the vision of the church of 1122, which is a movement. That's why, that's why that word is in there in our vision statement. That we are a movement. For all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. Pastor Britt kicked us off last week with our first core value, which is biblical integrity. I hope you were here for that. If not, catch it online. It was an incredible sermon. And the idea is this. The word integrity comes from the root word integer, which just means one. In other words, that we were created to be one whole person and that we are not to compartmentalize our lives, but that all of our lives are to love, honor, and respect our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the way that we do that is not just by being better people, but we are under the authority of the word of God, that we believe that that the Bible is our authority, so our first core value is biblical integrity. Maybe my favorite part of his whole sermon is when he talked about how he was teaching his children the Bible, and he said he was gonna love the Bibles down their throats until they got it. That was my favorite part. He also said, that um that that in our in our christian life there's kind of an air war and a ground war and in the air war the most important words are it is finished in other words when jesus christ died on the cross that counted for you but in the ground war of the life of the christian the kind of day to day tactical uh war maybe the most important words are it is written and he walked through some it is written in our lives So that any time the enemy comes after us, he has not left us empty handed to battle against them, but he has given us the very word of God. That's what biblical integrity is, which leads us to the second week this week. And our second core value here at the Church of 1122 is Christ like character, Christ like character. In other words, the way we live matters a lot. The way we live matters a lot. And what, what I always want to be careful on is this, though. Um, it's not like when we get our character right, then we get Jesus. It goes the exact opposite. When we get Jesus, then it should change the way that we live out our lives. And so typically, um, in evangelicalism, or really all throughout the history of Christianity, people have erred in one of two extremes. One is licentiousness, or license, or antinomianism is the theological term. And that means, hey, look, God saved me, it doesn't matter what I do. Wrong. Then the other extreme would be that of legalism, or fundamentalism, that I have to earn my salvation, and that is also wrong. Wrong. And so what it means is when we surrender our life to the lordship of Christ, then Christ takes up residence in us through the power of the Holy Spirit and what we believe and confess on the inside over time, not necessarily overnight, should change the way that we act and live on the outside. The way Paul says it in Philippians is that we should live our life in a manner worthy of the, Jesus, uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now faith, faith is the currency by which we know and love God. The Bible says without faith, nothing is possible. He says without faith, nothing can please God. And here's what faith is. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not like, a, I believe faith is to trust that God is who he says he is. And he always keeps his promises. That's what faith is. The faith is to believe that God is who he says he is. And he always keeps his promises. And as a follower of Jesus, here's what this means that I believe Jesus is who he says he is that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he is the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through him and that Jesus is always gonna keep his promises. That's what faith is. And what character is, is when our actions line up with what we say we believe. You see, the Bible says that, that even the demons believe the right things, but they don't have faith. And so what Christ-like character would be, it's not even just doing the right thing. You know, you can live your whole life, do the right thing and still die and go to hell. And still living a Christless eternity. What Christ-like character is, is to say, God, I'm gonna do whatever it is that you tell me to do, not by my own power, not just by willpower, but by the strength of the Spirit that lives in me. Here's how Jesus said it in John chapter 5, verse 19. It says, so Jesus says to them, this is the Pharisees that he's talking to, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Later on, when Jesus is arrested, before he's arrested, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he sums up his prayer this way, which really sums up his whole life. He says, not my will, but your will be done. That's Christ-like character. You see, every single one of us fall into one of two categories. We're either saying my will be done or we're saying thy will be done christ-like character is to say not my will but thy will be done and again the idea is not that you act your way into heaven that's impossible but what's on the inside of you over time under the authority of the word of god the power of the holy spirit the blood of jesus the love of the heavenly father would begin to work its way out to the outside of you so that it would change the way we live very simple illustration is this this is a water bottle Nobody's gotten this right so far in any of our services, okay, at any of our locations. If I shake this up, what comes out? Everybody's still nervous. One guy that I pay to be here, every service, he answers it. But uh, everybody's always like, it's not, a, it's not a trick question. When you shake up a water bottle, what comes out of it is water. I know you're like, oh, gosh, that's, are you sure? I want Jesus. It's Jesus. I'm going to say Jesus. No. No. The only thing that can come out of it is what is in it. Which also means the same thing is true of you. You know what comes out of you? What is in you. That should really be scary, shouldn't it? Like, how about this? Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh Uh-oh. You don't have a potty mouth. You got a potty heart. That's what that means. Nothing slips. And And the measure of a man or a woman's character will never be found in times of comfort. The measure of our character is found in times of challenge and uncertainty. You really want to know what's deep down in here? You shake you up and you see what comes out. Jesus is being pressed in the garden of a Gethsemane. He knows he's about to go to the cross. And here's what comes out of him. Not my will, but your will be done. What, What matters to us a lot here at this church is that we... That you and I would live lives of Christ-like character. That means, that means that God is on his throne, he is sovereign and he is in control and your life matters. Obedience matters. The decisions that we make, the life that we live matters. And again, we don't find out people's character when things are comfortable, but when there are incredible challenges that shake us up to see the kind of men and women that we are. And so the reason that I wanna to go to the book of Genesis, all right, we're gonna study the, the life of Joseph, and this isn't, if you're new to Bible study, this isn't like uh, Christmas Joseph. He comes much later. If you grew up in the 70s, this is Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph, okay? This is Old, old Testament Joseph. And then we're gonna start in chapter, I'm gonna teach this kind of Tarantino style. We're gonna start in 37, we're gonna go to 50, but we're gonna end up in 33, okay, so just kind of hang in there. And so the reason I want to look at Joseph as a man who demonstrates Christ-like character is this. Is that he... He has four major challenges throughout his life, four major challenges in his life. And those are, the first one is going to be popularity or the approval of man. The second one is going to be sexual immorality or sexual temptation. The third challenge is the way he deals with power. And the fourth challenge is the area of forgiveness, now, let's just be honest. The Bible, this, this was written thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. How relevant is the almighty word of God that today, that today, anybody here struggle with what people think about them? Anybody here tempted sexually? Anybody here um, struggle with how to handle power at work or home or school? Anybody here ever been hurt and need to offer forgiveness to someone? You see, you're going to see four areas in Joseph's life that that are as relevant today as they were back then. So let me tell you a little bit about Joseph. If you pick it up in in Genesis chapter 37, verse 5, it says this. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more, which means they already hated him before he ever told them the dream. So let me tell you why. So Joseph was the youngest of all, all the brothers. He had 11 brothers. There were 12 in total, and he was his dad's favorite son. Not only was he dad's favorite son, but he came from his dad's favorite wife. So if you've got a favorite wife, there's already a problem. Okay. I don't have time to unpack all that, but it's just true. You know it. And so and so the thing is, is that Jacob, his dad, didn't even hide it. Let me just tell you, if you've got a favorite kid, you know, if you've got a bunch of them and there's one you just like the best, just keep it between you and Jesus, okay? Don't tell anybody. You'll ruin your family, the kid. I mean, the, the counseling bills alone will just be ridiculous, okay? And so, but Jacob, the dad, he didn't do that. So he made, he made Joseph this, this coat of many colors, which was like the number one son banner, and Joseph just would wear it, all right? Well, Partly because he's a teenager, and you just do whatever you want to do and wear what you want to wear, right? And so he would show up to dinner and be like, hey, everybody, where's your number one son jacket? Oh, you don't have one? I do because I'm the favorite. So they already didn't like him. And then we pick it up in five, and he has this dream. And so he just tells them what the dream is. And here's here's a part of why he's gonna tell them what the dream is, because what we're gonna find here is one of the challenges that we're gonna see in Joseph's life is is the applause of man or the approval of God. Now, (laughs) does anybody struggle with that at all? Do you really care what people think or what God thinks? You see, what, what Joseph cared most about is what God thought about him, not what his peers thought about him. So he has this dream, and then in verse six, he says to them, "'Hear this dream that I have dreamed.' "...behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf." And his brothers said to him, "...are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us?" So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, "...and then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, "...behold, I have dreamed another dream." Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, here's a part of the deal why I think Joseph shared this. One is because Joseph believed, he had faith. He believed that God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. And this was God's call on his life. And from this point forward, Joseph is going to be a man of Christ-like character that not only does he believe that God is who he says he is and always keeps his promises, but that's how he's going to act. And now, the brothers, they, they naturally, they hate him. I mean, think about this. Anybody have a younger sibling in here? Raise your hand high if you do. At Bay Meadows, everywhere. Okay, okay. can you imagine your teenage, younger sibling come to you and says, behold, I mean, you just woke up that morning, that morning eating your grape nuts, and somebody's like, behold, uh, I've had a dream, and the dream is that all my older brothers and sisters, you guys are gonna bow down to me. What would you do if you're the big brother? You go give him one of those, Maybe one day, but right now you're bowing down to me, little bro. Right? That's how that would go. You give him the right foot of fellowship, and just keep it right. So, <laughs> so now <clears throat> they 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 despise him, and then if you if you just. To summarize, between verses like 10 and 13, one of the things that Joseph's dad would have Joseph do is his 11 brothers were all, um, they were all shepherds, so they would be out in the field, and apparently, I mean, you put 11 guys unsupervised out in the field, it's not gonna go well, and so the dad would send Joseph out to give a report, and Joseph would come home, and this is what he would do, he would tell the truth. And do you know why he would tell the truth? Because he was more concerned about what God thought about him than what his peers thought about him. Now part of the reason he could do that is because he didn't have Facebook, but that's just a different deal. Okay, so so here's what we see in verse fourteen. It says, So he, that's the dad, said to him, that's Joseph, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, verse fifteen. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So apparently they're in like eastern Alabama somewhere. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Listen, if you're new to Bible study, they're not in Alabama, okay? <laughs> Check the maps at the back of the book. All right, verse 18. And they saw him from afar, and before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben, Reuben was the oldest brother, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit where here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him that he may that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to the father. So they see Joseph with his dream, technicolor dream coat coming, and they're like, man, you know what? We're sick of this. I'm gonna show you who's gonna bow down to who, and let's just kill him. That's what they wanna do, kill him. And then Reuben, you know, in this moment of grace, says, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's just throw him down here in the pit. And then he goes and eats a, eats a corned beef sandwich, I think. And so, so it says in verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, The robe of many colors that he had wore, and they took him, and they threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Now, remember, Joseph is a man of faith, a man of Christ-like character. He's going to do what's right according to God, no matter the cost, no matter the circumstances. Let me just point something else out. You ever do the right thing, but the wrong thing happens to you? Welcome to the Bible. Okay? Okay. People make a really good living preaching this message that says, if you do X, Y, and Z, then God owes you health, wealth, and happiness. Let me tell you the problem with that. It's just this book God gave us called the Bible. Because over and over and over and over, you see men and women doing the right thing according to God, regardless of the cost, regardless of the circumstances, and it costs them big time. You see, once again, here here is Joseph, and he's more concerned on what God thinks about him than what his peers think about him and it gets him beaten up, battered and bruised. How about you? What do you care more about? What people think about you or being obedient to God? I mean, and here's the thing, all right, like this, like on your Facebook page, what do you care more about? Being obedient to God or pleasing others? Now here's the crazy part of this. Every one of you think I'm talking about somebody else right now, including me. Like I'm thinking, I wish they would listen and I should probably listen too. I mean, we live in a world where the applause of man matters so much. Like tomorrow when you go to work or school, if your boss asks you to do something just a little bit shady, what do you do? Do you care so much about what they think that you're willing to throw your character away for the applause of man? Or if one of your friends asks you to tell a lie, not a big lie, just withhold a little bit of information for their own good. In regards to your character, what do you care more about? what people think about you, or doing what Christ would have you do. Now listen, this isn't just something that you deal with. Me too, me too. Every single week, every single week, it's something that I wrestle with. Like when I finish writing a sermon, I have a decision to make. Do I preach what I think God has called me to preach? And I'm just gonna tell you this, you preach out of this book, it will not make you very popular. It will not. People will get mad at you. They will. Magazines will write articles about you. It will, can make you very, very unpopular. And so I have a decision to make, and I keep one verse on my desk at all times. It's from Galatians 1.10 from a series we did a long time ago. And it says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. How about you? What matters more to you? Christ-like character says, God, what you think matters most. And so what Joseph did is he did whatever God called him to do, regardless of what anybody else thought about him. And you know what happened to him? He was beaten, battered, and bruised by his older brothers. He was thrown down into a pit. And then what happens is this group of people called the Ishmaelites come along. And one of the brothers thinks, well, let's let's at least make a little coin off a little bro here. And they sell Joseph into slavery. Again, you ever do the right thing and the wrong thing happen? Well, welcome to the Bible. And so what happens to Joseph is he goes to slavery in Egypt. And they put him up on the auction block. And this guy named Potiphar buys him. And Potiphar's like the, like the chief of police in Egypt. He's kind of a big deal. So if you skip over to Genesis chapter 39, we'll pick up to the next little part of Joseph's life. And the thing that, gets against, that comes against Joseph in this area of his life is sexual temptation. It says this in 39.1, it says, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar... An officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Verse 2, and the Lord was with Joseph. Time out. Don't you want to say, no, he wasn't? You see, I've seen the baptism testimonies before. Here's the way it's supposed to work. When you're far from God, bad things happen to you, and then you meet God, and then the cash and prizes come. Isn't that how it's supposed to work? Lord, it kind of seems like you're not paying attention. What's going on? What do you mean you're with Joseph? He just got uh, beaten up by his brothers and sold into slavery. How can you say that the Lord is with him? What you're gonna see throughout the life of Joseph is this phrase over and over and over again. That Joseph did not let his circumstances define him. He let his relationship with the Lord define him. And here's what he knew. He knew that God is who he says he is and that he always keeps his promises. So the Lord was with Joseph And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight, and he attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had from the time that he made him an overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Now, again, if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, Lord, I got an idea won't you bless me for my sake? But he's not. He doesn't do that. Joseph never complains. He never grumbles. It says the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now, this next verse, half a verse, six and a half, is one of my favorites in the whole Bible. I had Gretchen memorize it in three translations, and just so you remember, my full name is Joseph. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, praise the Lord. (laughs) If you need a memory verse, feel free for that one. All right, verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me which is Egyptian for, I like Hebrew boys and I cannot lie. That's what that means. <laughs> this brother's just been faithfully serving a master that he did not choose. He's just trusting God for who he is and what he promises. And now his master's wife is putting the moves on in verse eight, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold. Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. Just in case you forgot, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, people of Christ-like character understand that all sin is a sin against God. You're just not doing you wrong and her wrong. You're also doing God wrong. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he wouldn't listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was in there, in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Do you know what you do if you have Christ-like character in regards to sexual temptation? Flee! It's the only command that the Bible gives you in regards to sexual immorality, flee. And so he comes in, she grabs his coat. He's like, you can keep the coat. Coats have been getting me in trouble my whole life. He running shirtless down the road. I am out of (laughs) here. Nothing will challenge your character in our society like sexual temptation. And I'm gonna tell you, you're gonna wanna flirt and you're gonna wanna make excuses and not me and this is different and we're in love and you don't understand. The Bible says, flee, run away. If you wanna hear more on that, go back two weeks. I preached on it for about three hours. The last week of Judges, go check it out. So that's the second thing that challenges this character. The third thing that challenges this character is this, is power. So what happens is Potiphar gets home and his wife's standing in there with his coat and says, look, this Hebrew boy that you brought into our house, he tried to rape me. And so then Potiphar is gonna put him in prison. Verse 20, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. Now, I think if I'm Joseph, I think I would say, Lord, why don't you go be with somebody else for a little while, okay? (laughs) Just go spend some time with Potiphar's wife. She needs some company and hook her up or something, all right? Because, good gracious, you're killing me. Right, but he doesn't grumble. Why? Because he believes that God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Again, if I'm Joseph, I'm like, Lord, how about just get me out of prison? That would be a way to show me favor and steadfast love, but he doesn't do that. He keeps him in prison, verse 22. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so... One day, Joseph's hanging out in the prison and he makes two friends, all right? And these two guys come up, these two other prisoners. One was a cupbearer and one was a baker. And they had previously worked for the Pharaoh. But somehow they were political prisoners prisoners. And they had these dreams and they're telling about him. They're telling him about these dreams one morning. And Joseph says, you know what? God has given me the ability to interpret dreams. Just tell your dreams to me. And I'll tell you what they mean. And the is like, okay, here's my dream. He goes through his dream. And, and Joseph says, all right, here's what's going to happen. In three days from now, uh, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head and restore you. And you're going to get your old job back. And listen, listen, listen. When you get next to Pharaoh, could you please advocate for me like I've been advocating for you? Just please don't forget me. And the is like, yeah, no problem. And then the baker knows, goes next. He's like, my dream was super similar, all right? And he explains his dream. And then Joseph's like, okay, uh, your dream is very similar, but it's not as good, okay? In three days, you're all, you're, the Pharaoh's gonna lift up your head all the way right up off your body, okay? He's gonna behead you, he's gonna hang you and kill you, and then the vultures are gonna eat out your eyeballs. Okay, so tough. Now, bear, let's talk, because you can't do me any good anymore. All right, so, cupbearer, just please, please, please don't forget me. And so, sure enough, in three days, the baker's dead, and the bear gets his old job back. And for two whole years, for two years, Genesis go to Genesis chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So sure enough, for two years, Joseph every morning is waking up, saying, Any minute now, the cupbearer is going to come and get me out. For two years, nothing happens. And then one morning. The Pharaoh, he wakes up in the morning and he comes down to the kitchen table and making his cereal and everybody's gathering around. He's like, Yo, I had the craziest dream, okay? I dreamed that, I, that there were these big, seven big fat cows by the river and then these seven skinny cows came up, walking dead looking cows and they came over and they ate the seven fat cows, but they didn't get any fatter. I don't know what that means. And so everybody, all the magicians and soothsayers and all the, all the intellects gather around and nobody knows what it means. And then the is like, you know what I just remembered? Um, I didn't, really, I really don't like talking with you about the time you threw me in jail, but back when I was in jail, I had this roommate, let's not talk about that much, but I had this roommate and he was like this spiritual guy and he had this gift and he could interpret dreams. So what if we go get that guy and bring him here to tell you what your dream means? So in verse 14 of chapter 41, it says, then Pharaoh sent and he called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit." And when he shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. So trying to, you know, wash the jail stink off of him a little bit, verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, that you can interpret it. Now, the, the challenge that Joseph's going to get here is the challenge of power. Now, think about it real quick. If you're Joseph's life coach, what kind of advice do you give him? You lean in, you're like, Joe, this is your chance, man, okay? Listen, you've got to seize the moment. I mean, this is the most powerful man in the entire world, and you've got to make much, much of you. I mean, even if you've got to lie on your, on, your, on your transcripts or your application a little bit, or, or, your, or if you've got to boost you up a little bit, you better talk about what you can do. You have a unique gift set. You've got a unique set of talents. This is your chance to make much of you, Joe. Here you go, Joe, and here's what Joseph said. Verse 16. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And we look at that and we're like, Well, what's the problem? Here's the problem. Here's the biggest problem. Everybody in the room went, Oh, no, Joe. That's the wrong thing to say to the Pharaoh. You see, the Pharaoh thinks he's God. In fact, the Pharaoh has people bow down to him as the one true God, and what you just did is wag your finger in his face and say, my God's bigger than your God. That's just what you did to the most powerful man in the world. What are you doing? And all the people gathered around, they started humming, no, 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 because they think Joe's dead. You see, not only that, I imagine some of his boys are like, how are you still leaning into the God thing, man? I mean, he hasn't come through for you yet. With your brothers, you were doing what was right according to God, no matter the cost, no matter the circumstances. They beat you up, sold you into slavery. And then at Potiphar's house, you're trying to do what's right according to God. You still get treated wrong. Last two years, I don't know if you remember this, Joe, but you have been in prison. Where has your God been? What has your God done for you lately? And Joseph is saying, because he's a man of Christ-like character, my circumstances do not define me. My relationship with the Lord defines me. And so he's like, it ain't in me. It's God. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then sure enough, Pharaoh listens. And Joseph interprets the dream. And he's like, all right, those seven fat cows mean we got seven years of plenty. Those seven skinny cows, we got seven years of famine. So if you want to know my opinion... I know I've just been running the craft department at the jail for the last two years, but if I were gonna be in charge economically of the entire world, here's how I would do it. I would set a budget, and I would live on margin. I would, I would have some margin there, and, and I, in the first seven years of plenty, I'd hold back enough that we can make it through the last seven years of famine. Verse 39, and Pharaoh says to Joseph, "'Since God has shown you all this, "'there is none so discerning and wise as you are. "'You shall be over my house and all my people.'" shall order themselves as you command, only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over the land of Egypt. And all his advisors said, yay, because they've been trying to get this job their whole life, and now this guy that still smells like prison that's been running the prison yard for two years, he's in charge of the world. So let me ask you a question. When you go to work tomorrow... What does your faith look like there? When you have the opportunity to make a power play, when you have the opportunity to undercut one of your friends so that you can make the sale, when you have the opportunity to smudge the numbers just a little bit to make much of you, in that moment, what matters more to you? Do you think you're in control of your promotion or do you think the one true God is in control of your promotion? Do you really trust God that he is who he says he is and that he always keeps his promise? If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, we follow a Christ that though he was in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he dressed himself as a servant and became obedient to death and he laid his life down. What you and I as Christians are supposed to do if we're going to walk in Christ-like character is we always leverage whatever God has given us to serve others and not ourselves. How about you? Which leads to the fourth one. Sure enough. Sure enough, Joe becomes the vice president of Egypt, which means he's like the most powerful man in the entire world. And, and, first seven years, first seven years, they got plenty. They got more grain than they know what to do with. And then, like year eight, day one, food starts running out. And people from all over the world start getting hungry and word gets out, like on CNN or something, that Egypt has grain and people start coming into Egypt to get grain and guess who, about two years in, guess who starts getting hungry? His brothers and his dad all the way back in their hometown. And so... The dad, Jacob, tells the boys, Hey, listen, I need you guys to go to Egypt and get us some grain. And he won't send all of them at one time because he's still a little gun shy. You know, he lost one kid on the first field trip. So he's like, All right, we got to, you know, got to divide this up. So he only sends a few. So in chapter 42, the brothers start showing up. And in chapter 42, 43, and 44, you got to read it on your own this afternoon or something. Um, in those chapters, as the brothers start coming, Joseph recognizes that it's his brothers, and he kind of he jacks around with them a little bit. Like, he arrests them, and he, and he frames them, because that's just what brothers do. But eventually, he does all of that so that by the time you get to chapter 45, all of the brothers have gathered together in his office, and they are all bowing down before him. And here's the thing. And they don't know this is their little brother yet. And so... In Genesis chapter 45, after all the brothers have been, have been in Egypt, this is about 22 years later, since the last time they saw him, says this, then Joseph, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Is there somebody you need to forgive? Is there somebody you need to forgive? And they have hurt you and they have sinned against you and they have called you, gr- caused you great, great, great pain. Now see, if, you, if you've read to the end of the story, if you've been around church for a while, you know the end of the story. You already know what Joseph's gonna do. He's gonna forgive them. And you think that he's some kind of superhero of faith. Like he was born with a cape and a big F on his chest and the wind just blows the cape and he goes, forgive them. Like it wasn't a hard thing look what it says. There's all kinds of emotions going on with this brother. I mean, the moment they walk in immediately, don't you think he remembers what the bottom of a cistern smells like? Don't you think he remembers what it's like to be tied up behind a camel and walk from Dothan to to Egypt and think the rest of my life will be forever different because, because of what my brothers have done to me? Have you ever been hurt by someone that's supposed to be in authority over you? I don't have a Bible verse on this, but I can guarantee you this. Big brothers are supposed to take care of their little brothers and sisters. We institute that proverb in my house. If you ask JP, my son, what's your number one job? He will say, protect Reagan. We just did a week at Disney. He almost took out a couple that were looking at her weird, all right? And I say, praise the Lord. Get your weirdo kid away from mine, I'm telling you. Buy you another annual pass, brother. If you, all right, so Anyway. And that's funny, but here's the reality. If you've ever been hurt by somebody that was supposed to take care of you, it hurts worse, doesn't it? That you're I don't know even if you even have the language. You, you begin to think, you begin to think, God put you in this position over me to provide for me and protect me, and you leverage your authority to beat me up and throw me in a well, throw me away. Because of some words that you've said or some things that you've done or some promises that you broke, the rest of my life is different because of that. There's a lot of emotion going here. I'm not saying that forgiveness is easy. It wasn't easy for Joseph. The Bible will never say forgiveness is easy. You know how I know this? The cross of Jesus Christ. It was not easy for the Lord to forgive us. It cost him his son. The almighty, perfect, sovereign savior Jesus had to come to this earth, live a perfect life, shed all his blood on the cross, be battered and broken and put under the ground for three days in order for you and I To be forgiven. The Bible's never gonna say that forgiveness is easy. And so here he is. He's crying. He's losing it. So maybe if you feel like that because there's somebody that has sinned against you, welcome to the Bible. You're in really, really good company. But here's what he says. Verse three, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They're thinking, oh, no. <laughs> now, I've had people ask, how come, how come they couldn't recognize him? Well, there's two things, all right? This is like 22 years later. Anybody old enough to go to your 20-year high school reunion yet? Okay? That's why they have to put pictures on the name tags. Because when you get there, you're, first of all, you think, why are these people look so old? All right? And then you read the name, and you're like, who? And then you have to look at the picture from high school to be like, oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> so that's happening. The other thing is the last time they saw him, he's a 17-year-old Hebrew boy. Now he's the vice president of all of Egypt, all right? So he looks Egyptian. He's got, like, tattoos and ear piercings and a bald. He looks like a 22-er more than a Hebrew boy, okay? So that's why they don't really recognize him. Verse 4, and so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And what do you think they're thinking in that moment? Come near to me, please. And they came near. Now, in that moment, what do you do? Because you got options. You know what option one could be? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You could just whistle and somebody comes running in with a samurai sword and just freaking cuss their head off. Or you could say hello to my little friend. Ta, 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 ta. I mean, you could take them all out and I think you'd be okay. Cover up the bodies nobody even knows. That's one. Or you know what you could say to me? Uh, don't call me brother. When I was 17 years old, I ceased to have any brothers. Because when y'all threw me down and gave me up, you gave up the brotherhood. And so I owe you nothing. So go die a slow death back at home. There's another option. Or... Or you could at least say, you could at least give me a, I told you so. I? What's up, sheaves? Huh? What's up now? I don't know what a sheave is, but you look like you're full of sheave right here. Just, all oh, bow down to my sheave. <laughs> he doesn't do any of it. He doesn't do any of those things. You know why? Because he knew from the day he was a child, when he was at that breakfast table telling him about his dreams, that God is who he says he is and that he always keeps his promises. And even though he could not see in a million years when he was in prison or when he was being sold in slavery or when he was in the bottom of a cistern, even though he could not see in the natural how God could possibly pull it off, here's what he knew. He was a man of Christ-like character. So he believed that God is who he says he is. He's always going to keep his promises. Therefore, he acted like it. So here's what he says. And he says to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, just in case if you forgot how I got here. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you. That's big. See, you thought you were doing something evil against me and God had a purpose and a plan behind it this whole time. That God, sovereign God, sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. This is huge. You see, Christ like character lets us know that God is sovereign over everything. He listen, you thought you were in control when you were, when you were hurting me. You weren't in control. God Almighty was in control. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You see, here's, here's the thing. Joseph knew that he's a good, good dad. That's just who he is. And I'm loved by him. That's just who I am. And regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the cost, regardless of the pain that you put me through, nothing has ever been over his head. Nothing has been out of his hands. He's still got the whole world in his hands. And what you were trying to do to hurt me, God was doing to save you. And you think, hold on, where are you going with this? Can God use evil for good? See the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and, and let me really blow up our little Southern evangelical American minds. And God, it, God doesn't just use evil. He can even allow it and know it is coming your way and do nothing to stop it on purpose. What? How can you say that? The cross of Jesus Christ. What, what looks like the most horrific sin in the history of eternity that God showed up to earth and we killed him. And yet God had a plan to use that very sin to redeem the killers. Amen. Do you get that? That that when the the Jesus killers all gathered around him, which is me and you in our sin, and we said, crucify him, kill him, little did we know that God actually purposed that very moment, that Jesus would push up on his nail-pierced feet and he would say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is finished. Let me tell you how this works in your own life. If you don't have a sovereign view of God, I honestly, I don't know how to tell you how to deal with pain. God does not drive an ambulance. He's not running around behind your life trying to clean up all the messes that he can purpose even some of the most painful things in your life for his own glory. In God's economy, did you know that he might allow you to go through the pain that you were going through so that you could offer forgiveness, unmerited favor and grace towards somebody else, and God might use that very instance of your forgiveness offered to them so that they could see and understand the gospel for the first time, and that God might use that very moment that they would surrender their life to the lordship of Christ. And in God's economy, he would say, Worth it, worth it. This is what Joseph believes. And this is a big part of the reason he can forgive his brothers. Now again, I am not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that our story revolves around God's plan. God's plan does not revolve around our story. And I know, man, I get it, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that that it's easy, I'm not. Forgiveness isn't easy, it costs God his son. But let me tell you who wants you to believe forgiveness can't work. The enemy wants you to believe forgiveness is impossible. You know why? Because at the core of the message of Jesus is forgiveness. So if he can convince you that it's impossible for me to forgive my dad or forgive my mom or forgive my ex, then it's surely impossible for God to give me, forgive me. But almighty sovereign God says with faith, anything is possible. And if Jesus can push up on those nail-pierced feet and say that we're forgiven, then we're forgiven. And we can forgive others. That not only, not only does, does, does Joseph forgive his brothers, you know what he gets? He gets kind of a little bonus here. For the next two decades, you know what he gets? He gets a relationship with his father again. You know, there are some of us in this room who've been withholding forgiveness and it doesn't just damage the relationship of the people that have sinned against us, but there's always collateral damage in unforgiveness. If you've got any kind of family junk, which is all of us, if, you, if you've got that kind of family junk, you, you know and when it rises up like at Thanksgiving and Christmas, like you walk into that house and everybody's got your last name, but, and you love everybody, but this one hates that one and it stinks up the whole room and then everybody's casserole is sorry. Is that not true? There's just collateral damage to forgiveness. And so this is what he does. He forgives his brothers. He forgives his brothers. And he has this relationship with his dad for two more decades. And then if you go down, if you go to the, to the last of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, eventually his dad gets old and he dies, verse 14. It says, after Joseph had buried his father, Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. You see, this is the nature of forgiveness. Anytime someone sins against you, they create a debt debtor relationship. They owe you something. They took something from you. They hurt you. And so you have a decision whether you can make them pay you back, which they can't because you can't go back in time and undo it or redo it. So you can hold on to that debt or you can cancel the debt. That's what forgiveness is. It has nothing to do with feelings. We'll have all kinds of feelings about that stuff. And so his brothers are like, hey, maybe he's going to pay us back. Maybe he's not going to actually forgive us. And he's been doing this whole deal just to keep dad happy. Verse 16. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and they fell down before him. And they said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God. And as for you, you meant evil against me let me show you something that joseph never does joseph never just glosses over the past as if it was not a big deal he calls evil evil because it's evil he doesn't say you know what that human trafficking thing not a big deal that slavery thing not a big deal that domestic violence deal not a big deal that time that i was accused of of rape when i actually didn't do it and i'm in prison not a big deal he never ever does that sin is a big deal I'm not saying the pain that has happened to you is not a big deal. When people have run out on you and lied to you and stabbed you in the back, it's a big deal. You know how big a deal the sin is? Not just that we have done, but done against us. It's such a big deal that Jesus had to die on the cross for it. That's a big deal. And so here's what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible start this way but God meant it for good. Now, here's it does not say you meant evil and God used it for good. It says God meant it for good. That God is sovereign over everything, even our very own pain. He says, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Do you think they had any idea what hung in the balance on that very day? I don't think they had any idea. You see, they're all kneeling down before him. They're expecting to be killed, to be beheaded. And then Joseph says, listen, I'm going to forgive you. I I forgave you a long time ago. I'm still forgiving you now. Not only I'm going to take care of you and your little ones, that, that God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You see, do you think he had any idea that this would be a picture of the gospel? That one day Jesus would show up, people would try to murder him, and God would use that very murder to save the murderers. That's just how God works. And not only that, these 11 brothers, 12 including Joseph, They all grow up and have families and they become the 12 tribes of Israel for 400 years there in Egypt. And then Moses comes and gets them out, takes them right to the edge of the promised land. Joshua drives them all the way through and they set up the nation of Israel and out of the nation of Israel becomes one Messiah and his name is Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, we said, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And today we gather to make much of Jesus and you could trace it all the way back to this one singular moment in human history where Joseph is standing in front of his 11 brothers, and he forgives them. Do you have any idea what hangs on the balance when you withhold forgiveness in your family? The answer is no, you have no idea. It could change the trajectory of your family for every generation until Christ returned. And then you look and you go, how could he do this? How could Joseph possibly pull this off? Maybe Joseph could forgive because he knew what it was like to be forgiven. We're going to close with Genesis chapter 33. Go all the way back to 33. When you get back to, when you get back to Genesis 33, the main uh, character going on in 33 is the dad of Joseph. His name's Jacob. Jacob means, his name means deceitful one, and Jacob was kind of a mama's boy. He liked to cook, hang out in the tents, and he had a brother named Esau. The Bible says Esau just means hairy, so he's a big hairy dude, and he, and he liked to hunt. I like him already, okay? And so um, one day while Esau's out hunting, Jacob steals the two most important things from his big brother Esau his birthright and his father's blessing. And when big hairy Esau, good with a bow Esau, finds out that his, that his little, you know, cooking brother stole his stuff, he vows, I'm going to kill him. And so Jacob's mom's like, you better get out of here because big Brother's going to kill you. And so for decades, Jacob lives on the run. He lives on the run. Now again, this is Joseph's dad, Jacob. And so Jacob's living on the run and eventually he kind of comes back to the Lord and the Lord tells him, hey, you got to go see your brother. And basically Jacob thinks, you know what, I'd rather die under Esau's hand than just live on the run like this. And so when you pick it up in Genesis chapter 33, that's what's going on. And it says this, they're going to meet Jacob and Esau. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. And so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants and he put the servants with the children in front. Then Leah and her children and Rachel. And who's that? Joseph. Now he's got 12 boys. There's only one mentioned by name. And what we're gonna find out in a little while, what, what Jacob is trying to do is trying to pay off Esau. He's bringing everything that he has, all his family, all his riches. And he's gonna say, in order for me to pay you back, I'll give you everything that I have. That's what he's trying to do. But check it out. There's one child mentioned here by name, Joseph. Verse three, he himself, that's Jacob, went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother Esau. Now imagine in that moment what is little Joseph thinking. He's probably about nine or ten years old at this point. And there he is. You know, he's thinking, What are these four hundred men doing? Why are they dressed for war? And especially that big hairy one. And his mama said, That's your Uncle Esau. He went, Oh no. Oh no! I heard I heard all growing up that Dad robbed Uncle Esau from his birthright and the blessing of Granddad, and I thought in in the reason that we had to live out of town all of these years, my whole life plus before that, in the reason that we had to because because I've always heard that if we ever saw Uncle Esau, Uncle Esau was going to kill our Dad and maybe kill us all. And they said, Yeah, yeah, that's him. And so there they are, kneeling before Uncle Esau, and imagine what this little 10-year-old boy's thinking. Oh, no, this is it. My dad's about to lose his life, and maybe we are too. And quite honestly, I think Uncle Esau is right. I think he could kill my dad here. My only hope is grace. My only hope is mercy. My only hope is forgiveness. In verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him. And embraced him and fell on his neck and he kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and he saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise with her children drew near and bowed down. And last, who? Joseph, the only one mentioned by name. And Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. In other words, I want to pay you back. And verse nine, but Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. In other words, you're forgiven. I don't owe you any. You don't owe me anything. And in that moment, little ten-year-old, ten year old Joseph experiences what a forgiveness of a debt is. He says, You're forgiven. And maybe, the Bible doesn't make this connection, but maybe the reason that Joseph can stand over his 11 brothers who are bowing down before him and he could just take them out right then, maybe he's thinking, you know what, I remember this picture about 30 years ago. I can remember a day when I was kneeling down before my uncle Esau and he had every right to take out my dad. But by his grace and mercy, he forgave. And maybe that, that's why he could stand before his brothers that day and say, because I have been forgiven much, I forgive you. And he had no idea, no idea what hung in the balance. Do you know how big a deal your life is? Do you know how much it matters? Do you know how much the decisions that you and I make matter? See, you have no idea. The decisions that you make this week in regards to the applause of man or sexual immorality or power or especially forgiveness, you have no idea there might be a little 10-year-old watching every move that you make. And it could change a generation forever. It could be a roommate is watching you in regards to the way that you live your life. It could be somebody that you work with. It could be a neighbor. And because of what you do, because you have Christ-like character and you demonstrate that you believe God is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises. 20 or 30 years from now, God could use that very thing to change, to change, in our case, to change the entire world. Here's the way Jesus said it. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, your life matters. May you be so filled with the presence and the power of Jesus that it changes everything that you do. In regards to forgiveness, may you stand at the foot of the cross and hear the words, it is finished, which means that your forgiveness debt has been paid for. And forgiven people, forgive people. And if you ain't given it, maybe because you ain't got it. I know that's bad English, but it's the right theology. So who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? And do you realize what hangs in the balance that God could use the decisions that you make this week, not by your own power, but in that Christ-like character to change the world, at least change yours. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious heavenly Father, God, we love you because you loved us first. So Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room, the students that are so concerned with what people think versus what you think. God, will we fix our eyes on you? God, I pray for the men and women as they go to work tomorrow, Lord. And they're so, we are so tempted to just grab the power. Lord, I pray that we would lay our lives down like you laid our your life down for us. God, I pray against sexual temptation, may we flee and run to you. And Lord, I pray for the men and women that are going through excruciating pain because the people that were supposed to take care of them hurt them and tried to throw them away. And the emotions and the feelings seem to just recur over and over and over. And Lord, I pray that through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, they would be able to offer forgiveness. Lord, I thank you that our lives matter, that we are not puppets on a string, but we are created as image bearers of the Most High God. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Folks, we respond to the gospel. It's what we do. We join our voices together to sing. We bring our first and our best, our tithes and offerings to God because he first loved us by giving us his best in Jesus. And maybe the Holy Spirit is stirring something in you that you need to get to work on. I would highly encourage you to just come to the altars. If there's somebody that you need to forgive, I don't know that you will be able to do it on your own power. So maybe you would come and kneel at an altar and just beg God to give you the strength from his spirit to do what he has done for you. Let us respond.